Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk with someone else who has taken the reins of their industry horse and steered it off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Do you know how hard it is to buy fresh food at reasonable prices year-round that hasn't traveled thousands of miles to arrive at the grocery store? Nearly 19 million people, I didn't know this, nearly 19 million people in the U.S. live in what's called food deserts meaning that they don't live near a grocery store. And don't think that it's just lower income. It's big cities like LA, New York, Chicago, they have trouble providing fresh food to its citizens. Now, our guest today works with architects, engineers, farmers, and city planners to create buildings that come alive and are a source of food for the people that live there. But there's always a caveat, right? Growing thousands of plants indoors with all these building restrictions and putting together all these stakeholders quickly complicates things. So our guest is the conductor when it comes to these big projects. And as the conductor, she knows how and when to engage the different stakeholders to make food sustainability a reality. Coming to us live from Cincinnati, Ohio, please welcome our disruptor, CEO, and owner of the Alternate Edge Consulting, Dawn Parks. Hi, KJ. How are you? Hi. I always feel like we need the, like the clap sound in the background. It's like, oh, oh yeah, well, here we'll clap. <laughs> I'm so I'm I'm really excited to be here. So I would be clapping because I am glad to be here. Good. Well, you know, I'm glad to I'm glad you are too. So I really want to talk about food sustainability today. This is stuff that I didn't know about, and it's very important with what's happening all over the world today. So before we get into that, tell me, Dawn, what is your main ingredient for disruption? Well, my, my main ingredient is really, you've got to think outside the box. Quite often what's happening today is when we're doing research with regard to agriculture, so much of it is happening either in the big corporate organizations or it's happening at universities, which is great because they really do have the resources to get it all done. But a lot of the funding, people rely on the government agencies, USDA, things of that nature. And they're really very limited in what they can, what they can provide in terms of funding. They have to, they have to report back to the higher ups within our government. And so they have to prove that the money that they're spending on agriculture is going to work, which leads us to incremental thinking. Right. It's just let's do it a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And the problem with that winds up being that a lot of the cool new technology that's available out there or the way that we can combine agriculture and architecture and do it in an urban setting. A lot of that stuff gets pushed by the wayside because nobody's quite sure who, to, who will fund it. It takes a long time to be able to prove something works. And in this day and age, when people need a big, fast return on investment, a lot of companies aren't able to do that. So I like to kind of start to look outside the box and look for technologies that could fit together that people hadn't thought about fitting them together before. Wow, that's so interesting. And today with technology and the tech stack really increasing for so many companies, this really is a way to 
step outside the box and look at it. Do you think that it's been so incremental like that because it has been with government and public institutions like universities? I think that has a lot to do with it. The government agencies, you know, they have to provide a return on investment back to the government, prove in the budget, you know, every year the Congress goes through and makes a decision about who gets funded and who doesn't. And if we're not producing something that the con Congress understands, they're going to cut something out. Right. And then when you have public institutions, the, those professors, they are some of the smartest people on the planet and they're in a publish or perish mode quite often. So they have to be able, they're building on research they've already been doing and they have to, in order for them to keep, to stay in their position, they have to keep building on unique things, right? They can't completely take a left turn in their science because then the institution it doesn't know how to manage for that. So everything's set up for incremental, but it also takes a long time to build a new crop. You know, if I decided, uh, there's a professor at Purdue, he's so great, and he's created this orange corn, and the orange corn has vitamin A in it. And there's a lot of people in Africa who go blind early because of the lack of vitamin A. So he's created this really great orange corn, but he, nobody really wanted to fund it because A, it looks funny. B, you know, what do you do with, you have a lot of testing you have to go through to prove that vitamin, that the vitamin A is okay, all this extra vitamin A, right? And then when they were selling it and trying to get people to grow it in these other countries, it's like, well, it's not yellow, I don't want it. So there's so many, even though it's such great technology, when you have to, when you're a professor and you don't want to wreck your career and you can't get a public agency to fund it, who's going to pay for it? Right. So it, it becomes a really interesting set of questions you have to sort through. And how much risk can I take as a professor on my career? That's so interesting to me. So, you know, we're talking about orange corn and we're talking about places where they go early because of lack of vitamin A. What's the status quo of food sustainability today? Like paint that picture for me because I don't live in a place that is has a dearth of grocery stores. In fact, we have some great grocery stores around, <laughs> you know, a lot of organic food, right? Right. Tell me what is that like and what is the underserved market today that there's such a pent up demand? Well, as you know, that's complicated, right? And it, and it really depends not only depends on where you live, not just in the United States, but in other countries. And you've got complications that come in from climate change that have an impact on things. And you have technology implications that make things more or less available. So from what I understand in the research I've done, there's actually plenty of food. There's plenty of food to feed everybody. The problem is okay, getting that's it like to a, people. That's like, a, that's like a hammer drop. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's plenty of food to feed everyone. So what is. is the problem? Well, that it depends on where you are. Right. So in the United States, we have issues where even just a couple of neighborhoods over from me, because of its location and past history, there's no grocery store nearby. And if you you could take a bus. Right. But then you've got to carry all your bags on the bus and then you've got you know, then how do you do it in the rain? How do you do it in the snow? Because we get a lot of ice and snow and the grocery stores aren't moving in and the grocery stores that do move in, they're taking a bigger risk because it, because there isn't a lot of retail or it might be higher crime or it might be a lower socioeconomic area. So then it's, if you have $40 and you have to feed five people, it's easier to go to McDonald's than to go buy broccoli and lettuce. You I have heard that. I have right? seen that. 
or the, or yeah. the local convenience store, which is just junk food. Right. Well, a lot of them have have more food available, but it's 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 all about getting the food anywhere near their location. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's part of the issue in the United States. Right. The other things we run into is like when we send food to other countries like that are in war, the food has to go through aid agencies and the aid agencies will often get caught up in a political situation where the food never gets to the people that it's intended for, just like a lot of the medical supplies don't get to the people it's intended for. The other issues we have are like climate change. So right now, even in the United States, as we're seeing temperatures changing, so I, I don't, I'm not going to talk about why temperatures are changing. We just know that temperatures are changing. So as it gets warmer in the southern part of the United States, even by a few degrees, it changes how the vegetation grows, which has an impact on how fast corn and wheat and peanuts grow and what you have to feed your cows. And if you're a dairy cow, those dairy cows are starting to, those farms are starting to move further north because they don't produce as much milk in the heat. But beef cows are moving further south because they do well in the heat. So you know, just, just in the United States alone, we're starting to, there's so many things that are happening, right? And then we have a lot of crops where there's single crops. I mean, we grow, if you, if you drive anywhere, right, you'll see miles and miles of orange trees where you are, right? And we see miles well, and miles so of Well, not so much like we used fields. to. <laughs> we used right. to have a lot of orange groves. We don't really have that much anymore. Right. But there, but there, when there was. Yes. You know, or where we are, we have a lot of wheat and you have a lot of corn and you have a lot of soybeans. Right. And you could, you can get a disease coming in there in a second. And because it's a monoculture, it just wipes everything out. What do you overnight. mean by monoculture? Just like one so, crop. One crop. Yeah. So like all, almost all the soybeans in our country are the same. So if a disease got in there, it could take out a lot of, of the soybean production. Soybeans is in so many products. Well, you know, we have that problem in Florida with the um, citrus right now. Mm. I forget what right. the disease is. And interestingly enough, people are buying more orange juice since COVID. Back to the day when we used to buy orange right. juice for vitamin C, remember? That was the campaign <laughs> growing up. And people have started to go back to things that made them healthy. Mm-hmm. And so there's this huge supply and demand issue now because there's a diseased crop and it's been a real issue for a number of years. Oh, it's, and that's the kind of thing that happens all over the place. You know, the cabin, the bananas that we have now, those are facing extinction because we can't, there's a disease that's running through the plantations. And so they're trying to develop a new banana. There's another banana. You're kidding. That came, I there's another banana that. that came before this one that was smaller and more compact. This new one is much bigger. And now they're trying to create a new one that will be disease resistant. But that's because people only eat the one banana. It's the one, it's everywhere. So that's where like things like biotechnology become important. But people have issues around biotechnology and genetic engineering. So we have to start to think about the power of and. Some things don't get engineered while other things do get engineered because it does take a long time to create a new crop of that people will eat, that it will taste good, that it will work in your products. I'm mostly gluten-free, but when I first started eating gluten-free, I couldn't just pick up almond flour and add it instead of, you know, baking regular flour. The recipes didn't work. It took right. years for them to catch up. And yeah. that's just, yeah, that's just flour, right? So to create new products is, it takes a lot of time. So 
you've got issues around creating new products, but then you've got other issues. So I don't know if I'm, if I'm going on too long about this. Yeah, like, I, you know, this is I'm, all like part of the status quo and yeah. you know, there's all this attention on food sustainability, but do people really know the trouble that we have with that? Well, I, you know, I've got this client that I'm working with now. And so she's a cardiologist and she works with VA patients and they, you know, hypertension, obesity is a lot of the issues that she runs into. And she said, well, you should just eat, you know, here, eat, eat this, and then maybe we can reduce your medicines. And these guys who are vets in their, you know, in their seventies, it's like, I can't get to that food. It's nowhere near me. And she was, it was like a light bulb went off around the food deserts just in her own neighborhood. She just has, is in the purchase of buying a massive church that was just a, a building and building a rooftop garden and trying to build hydroponics inside and make it easy for people in the neighborhood to be able to walk, take cooking classes, because it's, it's not really necessarily a sustainability issue. It's an access issue, right? Yes. It's, you know. Yes. Got it. Well, what is that like? You know, so we're talking about the building these buildings or like her, right? That have the ability to grow the plants, grow the crops, or do you call it a crop when it's in a building? Sure. Okay. And it's accessible to people. So that we could look at in the US, say for instance, in your area, or say if it's a an area that's just lower socioeconomic, you know, income, okay. right? What are the challenges with that? getting it done, getting it accepted, you know, the campaign, like you have to have a, you have to have your own PR campaign to get people to know it's there. I mean, what are all the issues that you help kind of sew together to do something like this? Well, in those kinds of cases, we, we, we look at the entire community. Is it a community that already has some strong working relationships? And then you can work with some of the nonprofits who are already working with people who are trying to get them the food that they need or trying to get them to their doctors or trying to get them, maybe it's books for kids, right? Because a lot of times it's not just the older population, it's the kids that don't have access to food. The schools might have free and reduced lunch plans. So you, there's a lot of fairly easy free ways to get information out, but you have to kind of look at it like the, the whole picture to just move into a place like that, it's cool and exciting at first. Everybody's talking about yeah. it, but you really need a strategy. So you have to look at who's already doing what. You don't want to step on anybody's toes. Who can support what you're doing? But then you still have to get funding. Maybe you get funding from a United Way kind of an organization or some sort of community fund or a bank. So in this particular case with the person we're working with now, the work you have to do to shore up the roof because the water and the soil is so heavy, you think, oh, I'll just put a garden up there. Uh, no, dirt is really, really heavy. And then you add water and people walking on it, it can get really crazy. But inside, there's a lot of people who know how to grow things hydroponically and those kinds of resources are, are pretty available. But you have to kind of look at the whole thing. It's like if you're conducting an orchestra, Right. You've got the violins and the violas and you've got the cellos and you've got some brass in the back and a little bit of percussion and some are coming in at one time and some are not at another. So but when they all play at their at their right time, then you have a beautiful sound. So you won't you might not have all 10 organizations working at the same time. It's these two now with this one over here with this architect. And this is what's happening in the spring. And then in the fall, we add this and we add a meals on wheels cook and we add a chef and we add a zumba class or but we want to look at the, the strategy strategy yeah. is so critical 
so critical. And yet and you have to be clear on what you're trying to accomplish. Just saying, I want to decrease a food desert, I, you know, make that go away. It doesn't work that way. People in that community need to want to change. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody moved in next door and said, KJ, you should be doing this and you should be doing that and you should be doing this and you should be, be here like, in Why? Tampa, but you, <laughs> you should stay out of the sun because you're going to get skin cancer and, you know, you should be doing this or you should be, how come you're not helping to clean up the beach and how come you're not helping? You don't want to do that. So we have to go in and look at what does the community want and move them to this new place, which they might not even know that's a future that they want. So you're up against then instead of being up against agency funding, you're up against a cultural conversation. Orange corn will save you from blindness. I don't care. It's orange. (laughs) Hey, it's like you need a PR campaign over there to make orange cool. I mean, I could see orange corn being cool in the U.S. for all the foodies. I would eat orange corn. Right. I ate, was it black corn or purple corn in Peru? Purple or blue corn or something. Yeah. 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 And that was, it it was very amazing, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Purple potatoes, right? Yeah. 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 But you're right. It is a cultural thing. And those are all things that you have to consider. And it's whatever's happening in that community. I think that's the important thing. You know, I was thinking about, and I use this as an example quite often, but, you know, Jakarta, Indonesia, Jakarta is has been the capital for a very, very, very long time. And with climate change and the weather changes, the arid land, so arid being land that is farmable, has gone underwater from all of the typhoons and the way the water tables have shifted. And Jakarta itself is a city that's sinking so they had to move the capital. So now, but before they move the capital, the people the people will still live there. How do we feed them now? How do you feed them when their land goes away? And that's where these cool buildings come into play, right? Is there Can a project build? going on there in Jakarta? There isn't right now. I kind of would love to get get down there, but that's that's one of those out of the box thinking things that's so critical. Where if you could have like a beautiful tall greenhouse that's six or eight or ten stories, and then have a protein source, chickens or something like that, growing in a building next to it, where then the waste from the chickens is used, is composted into the plants or is put into a digester to create heat, you know, to for um, heating and cooling systems in the greenhouse, right? And, and then you could start to see these interacting buildings and interacting products. And then it doesn't matter if you don't have all of that land available. The people that live right there in town now all of a sudden have access to their vegetables and an important source of protein that they use on a regular basis. That is super innovative. How do you how do you go about picking projects or finding projects? Do they come and find you? And who are these people that start these projects? Well, it's interesting. Most of the people that I work with have been at Purdue University. And Purdue does have a, such a strong agricultural background and the dean you know dean karen plout has been really generous in saying you know you don't necessarily have to follow the tried and true pathways right let's let's think about how do we grow things when it's a virtual world or a remote world right we can't always be working with cows that are on campus we have to think about this in ways we've never thought about it how do we do things when people don't want to be farmers anymore so now we have to figure out, are our animals eating? You know, are they, are they drinking? How, how do we make sure they're healthy without having an hourly waged farmhand in the middle of the field all day long? And so that's really where I started. And then with those people, we reach out and work with different companies who also have an interest and they might be developing some technology that we can try. 
and we can have farmers try. And then that expands us out into more companies. So it really becomes more public-private partnerships in a lot of ways than being government agency funded. Well, yeah. we'll take the, everybody will take the government funding, but you want to be able to have some freedom as well to do some of these higher risk projects where possible. Public-private partnerships are very innovative. We've had clients that do those in various industries and they not only are more innovative, they get more done. The private side definitely needs the public side for their input or their funding or their land. And the public side needs the private ingenuity and the ability to bring stakeholders together much faster and even funding as well, right? Right, right. Yeah. When, I, when I think about things like data, I mean, we've been collecting gobs of data on farms forever. It sits in people's spreadsheets. It's on CDs, it's on little disks, and every farmer opens up some of it every year and they figure out, when did I plant? What do I need? We've got a lot of great GPS systems that will allow you to regulate how much seed do I put down and do I change the amount of fertilizer I use and what do I do when I hit this ditch? And my farm, I can manage my farm really easily. I don't know what's going on in my neighbor's farm. And since we're so competitive, I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing and you're not going to tell me what you're doing. And then you have, so you have this patchwork of all of these people doing all of this work. No one knows what's really the best prescription, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm doing mine my way and you're doing yours your way, but you might have something that would work better that would allow all of us to have better productivity, less environmental impact, get more product to market. But we can't talk about that because we're so competitive. How do you break down those silos? You know, that capitalistic competitive silo. How do you do that? Well, I've had, I was working with a group called OATS, O-A-T-S, out of Purdue. And we were looking at what are some different ways to just figure out the data piece. You know, how do we get, like, so right now, like John Deere. John Deere, you know, they recognize the green tractors, right? Oh, they collect an enormous amount of data because everything's already built into their systems. It's great stuff, great stuff. But if you buy a Komodo tractor or if you buy an inertial harvester tractor, your data can't talk to the John Deere data. And so, and it can't talk to the Komodo data and it can't, there's no conversations, even on your own farm, you can't get that data to talk to itself, let alone talk to somebody else's. So like we were looking at how do we use something like blockchain, you know, blockchain from like cryptocurrency. But right. Blockchain is more like a, a platform, right? How do you track data where you can tr track the transaction, but it's anonymous in a lot of ways. So if, if we've got 10,000 acres of corn between 20 farmers and we know that there's a bug that has started to move on somebody's property, if we could use something like blockchain to know where it is to inform people about this bug without saying it's in KJ's cornfield, because I don't, you don't want to admit that it's in your field, yeah, I don't, right? I don't want the press for that. Or let me notify, notify me first so I can notify them first and control the story. Right, yeah. right. Competition, you know, most people would be like, oh, God, KJ's got it. So now I'm going to put my own wall up somehow. And so how could we use those kinds of technology, that kind of data information to make better decisions for everyone? Because at the end of the day, we all want to be productive and we all want to be profitable and we want to be environment. I don't know a single farmer that wants to pollute the water or pollute the air or put more fertilizer down than they need to. And they don't want bugs coming in and they don't want critters coming in and they don't want a bad crop and they don't want a drought and they don't want to be, everybody wants the same things. But the way the systems are set up is you can't talk to each other. So this group, you know, uh, Dennis Buckmaster is leading it at Purdue. They're working, they're doing that. They're working with some really big companies that I can't necessarily name because I don't know where they are in the different 
<laughs> right. But, but I mean, people who know these kinds of big algorithms and can do it and keep it private. So I think it's things like that. But then we don't have kids who know how to do this stuff, work with the data. There's a professor there, Mark, Mark Daniel Ward, and he is created something called the data mine, where kids live together, working on understanding data and how it works in agriculture, how it works in athletics, how it works in all these places. And then they go work for these big companies, learning how to work with all this data, make predictions, make it easy to understand because we're such a data-driven world. Yeah. So it's, it's thinking about these kinds of things. One of my favorite guys to work with is uh, Darren Karcher, who is actually a poultry specialist up there at Purdue. And he just got a million dollar grant, which is almost unheard of from the USDA, a million dollars. And a lot of people look at chicken. He looks at chickens, but they look at how do you grow chickens so that, you know, if they put one food out. Do they like this food or do they like that food? Right. And so they make assumptions about which food does the chicken like based on which one do they eat. But he's working with ocular folks to see how does the chicken see the world? So maybe it's not about the food itself, but it's how do they see the food and are able to find it? And if we understood how the chickens see the world, we could build different buildings and we could build different food sources instead of thinking, oh, it, it must be the taste. Maybe they just can't even see the other source of food. So it's, a, it's that kind of thinking outside the box that will help us get over these food deserts and these kinds of, you know, these crazy high prices. Yeah. Crazy high go. prices, food desert. Yeah. So to me, all of this sounds great. And it sounds like what we're working towards as a people to help. It still sounds a bit esoteric to me. So like, it feels like it's a long way off or it's in the ivory towers of the universities. And I know that's not the case because you make a living at doing this, right? <laughs> Can you give me some stories about things that are happening now? How do these people find you? And are they, is it someone just like your, is it a cardiologist you said that, uh, mm -hmm. are they just business owners, entrepreneurs, everyday people that are acting as heroes? Like they come up with something that's innovative and they find you and you help them put all these stakeholders together? It comes in a couple of different ways. I'm sure so, I'm trying to dumb it down. Seriously, yeah. But <laughs> I'm thinking of my audience, like, well, how does this work? Well, yeah. So, I mean, all those things that I mentioned are happening. I mean, all of those things are happening. So my example of what's happening where we've got the church that's being rebuilt, that's happening all over the country, all over the world. That I was just, you know, working, telling you about a, a microcosm of what is happening. Universities all over the place are looking at how do they find new and innovative ways to feed people. So there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there are a lot of things happening, but I think what's really more important is cities are putting more, what's the word? I don't want to say relaxed. They're encouraging a lot more just local and urban farming. So if, so, you know, letting more people grow chickens in the backyard or, you know, creating community gardens or finding, you know, doing unique kinds of farmers markets. But if people are, you know, looking for me, I, I mean, I, I'm happy to help with the small stuff or the big stuff, but I love thinking through the entire project. So a lot of people find me on or word of mouth through all of my Purdue references and some of these Cincinnati references. LinkedIn is really an important place, you know, and then promoting the results that we've seen. And have you um, seen it from the gamut of people that have experience doing this or people that just all of a sudden have a great idea? It's the gamut. The people who all of a sudden have a great idea, it's so much more important to connect them with someone who can take the high-flying balloon 
and can tether it to the ground, right? Yes. So it's not that the idea is bad, but we sometimes have to work through what is reality, right? And that's where the planning, you know, you've got to have your dream. You have to understand everything from, you know, how long does it take to actually grow a crop or produce an animal or create a new food? Even, even McDonald's, when they created a few years ago, when they first came out with their cappuccinos, right? It took them five years to develop that. So you don't just walk into McDonald's and all of a sudden they buy your product, right? You have to understand the marketplace. So even though we have great ideas and it's ready to go, that doesn't mean the marketplace is going to buy it right away because they're used to buying things that they want to buy. So if they're, if you're new in the market, it's everything from let's make sure your idea makes sense. We'll put like a litmus test to it. Then what do you know about owning a business and what do you know about fundraising and what do you know about working with people who produce this kind of stuff? Right. So that's where that conductor comes back in again. Sometimes I'm just a matchmaker where, you know, there's three or four companies need to come together and I'll be in the room and help them work through a a bigger picture strategy. But then they've got the people on the ground who know how to create the budgets and the partnership agreements and do all the legal stuff that's required. And they just need somebody to help keep the possibility alive as they move forward. That makes sense. Yeah. What is it that people can do? Like, you know, our listeners range from business executives and visionaries, venture capitalists, and they're looking for new things and ways to connect and solving the world's problems. But we also have people that are like the average Joe that says, what can I do, right? It seems to me sort of this grassroots effort of putting chickens in your you know, backyard. I mean, I've seen more of this, right? Having community gardens, I've seen a lot of that. That's sort of the guerrilla fundamental grassroots efforts. And then those can combine or, you know, you meet relationships there and can, you know, do something for a particular area together. Is, is that sort of how it, it forms or how is this disruption happening now? It's really, when you're talking about the local neighborhoods, right? It depends on what's going on in the neighborhood. And I know I've said that a few times, but if it's- It begs repeating. If it's, (laughs) yeah, but it's just that if people are hungry, building a community garden that all of a sudden has tomatoes isn't necessarily the thing to do. We kind of have to get at what's the source, what's the core problem. You could grow a lot more tomatoes, but if people don't know how to work with tomatoes and you only have tomatoes three months, what do you do the other nine months? You have to look at what's going on in the community and you have to look at what you love. If really all you want to do is grow tomatoes, that might not be what you do in your neighborhood. You might go find a neighborhood that wants support growing more tomatoes. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. These seem to be like bigger projects, like the the, one that you're doing with the church and the, and the cardiologist. But even though, I mean, we had this great brewery, right. And they, they built like a community garden outside of, the brewery and they just said, you know, come on by and pick whatever vegetables you want. So they had part of their staff was tending the vegetables and early in the summer, everyone was excited and people would come by every day and pick the tomatoes and pick by the end of the summer, since they didn't market it, people forgot about it. Yeah. But there are beat up groups everywhere. Your community, your community has lots of people talking about these things. You can go online and, and, and search for urban urban farming. You can go online and search for community foods. You can do food deserts and put your city in. And there are so many people working on these things. It's amazing. You go to the farmer's market, talk to the farmers, find out what their problems are and what their issues are. Where can you help them? And talk to enough of them. There's 
in Cincinnati, I don't know how many farmers, it seems like every neighborhood has a farmer's market. It's true. Go talk to them and find out, find out what, what the issues are, what, what's going on and find somebody you want to partner with. Because what you don't want to do is go it alone. You don't want to go it alone. You want to make sure you've got a market and you got, and you understand what's happening. Yes. Good point. What's the coolest project you ever worked on? That's probably a loaded question because you probably it, have many. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, I think the one that I described earlier, which we just couldn't get the funding for because it was so complicated because of the nature of businesses, universities, government agencies, licensing agreements, partnerships, etc. But this idea of growing this beautiful, having this beautiful agricultural farm that was several stories high with the protein source that was right near it, you know, because then you have your greenhouse people, you have your architects, you have your energy providers, you have your protein providers, you have all of the marketing, you have a new source of employment for people, you have less waste, you have less fertilizer being used, you've reduced your water, you're using more solar power, and your footprint is so small. But as we were trying to build it, one organization, you know, they would only give the land if these three other people did this thing first. And then this organization needed to be able to have four more of these. Uh, it felt like a bill going through Congress, you know, where instead of like, here's what the project needs. And, right. And so that I think that that was really, really the very coolest thing that I had ever worked on. How did you finally get the funding? Actually, what it has now become is the one on the ocular part of the chicken. So what started out as these two big buildings being side by side, the first part of the funding is now the chickens and the ocular work because people couldn't people couldn't see the whole thing because it was going to take a long time to pull all those pieces together. Is it a finished product now or is it just getting going? Like you just getting started. They just, announced the, they just announced the funding in the last few weeks. Fantastic. So How long did it take up. to erect something like this and stand it up? It depends. It, well, I always say it depends. And I, I apologize that I always use that word. Sometimes we already have the different technologies that are available and it's just a case of figuring out how they can talk to each other. Sometimes we're, it's bare earth and, we're, and you're starting from scratch. So in this particular case, there's already some buildings that are available that are being retrofitted, I believe. It Got doesn't it. take nearly as long. So we have a lot of innovators that listen to this podcast. And it seems to me like you have a variety of stakeholders, technologists that could get on board. Those mm -hmm. that understand blockchain. You have probably developers. You've mentioned architects. What are some of the other key types of stakeholders that if they were very interested in this and wanted to reach out to you, they had an idea or could lend their hand as, as one of the partners? So with architecture comes construction, right? Two very different things. Energy people, right? How do we deal with energy? Is it solar power? Do you use electricity? Do we use like a stored battery kind of a conversation? Do you use wind power? So all of the energy folks need to come together. Do we use a digester for heat? How do we do the heating and cooling piece of the product? How do we create the lighting? So, it, so it's not just the energy, but do we use LED lights? Do you use certain colored lights? All the, any of the fertilizer companies, right, who think they have something that will work better in a closed environment versus an, an open environment. A lot of times we want to, we have technology for harvesting. How do we make sure anybody who's thinking about a lot of the big indoor agricultural places that are, you know, floor to ceiling tomatoes and lettuce, you actually walk in with like a hazmat suit on because if you're carrying a fungus on your clothing, it could get into the lettuce and destroy a whole bunch of lettuce, right? So people who understand 
any of the kind of disease management, right? And how do we keep the, the plants that are growing <laughs> healthy That's amazing. and strong? You know, everything right? is interrelated and interconnected. And I've seen that so much since COVID as like a new life lesson, but you're talking about the food sustainability and accessibility and all of these partners to come together. And again, we're all interrelated, interconnected. Look at all these seemingly disparate industries and skill sets that need to right. come together for something like this, as important as our food supply, right? Right. How did you even, get into this? What were you going to say? Sorry. Well, no, I was just thinking about, so I, I've been teaching entrepreneurship at Purdue. So I work with a lot of the intellectual property that comes through, especially in agriculture. And there were these, there were these students who created a way to grow far, grow your product inside of a little case. And then they got a grant and it went in the space shuttle, right? To see how do these things work in a gravityless situation? And can, can we figure out how do we use these products if we wind up living on the moon or if we're trying to go to Mars, can you grow something besides have enough food besides what comes in a tube that they have to take, you know, when the astronauts right. are going to this, you know, the, the different stations. So I was just, you know, you think about there's so many people with great ideas that the universities are actually busting at the seams with intellectual property that they would love to figure out how to commercialize that the university is not in a position to commercialize. That is amazing. I did the, not know that. And the Department of Defense has, they, you know, they have created, and, and I can get that website for you, but they have created so much intellectual property trying to figure out how do you, how do we feed our soldiers? How do we deal with people in all these countries? How do we deal with people where we need to go into outer space? And a lot of that technology is now available for commercializing that it's kind of like when Tang went to the moon and now it was something you could buy in the grocery store. I don't right. know if it's still in the grocery store or not, but you know what I mean? It was things that come out of those, those kinds of experiments are now available that we're, if somebody, if somebody wants, there's so much technology available. If you have money and you want to get connected to somebody and, you know, I have this idea, let's talk. I'll see if I can find somebody who has a similar idea. I'll get to get y'all connected. Right. Right. That makes sense. I did not know that. Very interesting. There's mm -hmm. lots of intellectual property out there that just needs to be commercialized. Universities right. have it. Department of who? De Department of Department of Defense. Department. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Department of Defense. Cool. Mm -hmm. So now, how did you get into this? Like, what is your background? Have you always been very interested in growing things when you were little? Did you have your own garden? Like, you went to school for this? Like, what is? <laughs> tell me about Little Dawn and how you got. I would say I've always been an outdoor kid. Right. I grew up in the age where, you know, there were three channels and on the TV plus a PBS station, if you were lucky. Right. So there wasn't anything on lucky television. You. We were all outside and, and we, I was lucky. We had a, we had a little teeny cottage. So I, and the weekends in the summer, we'd go up to the cottage and there was no TV, no phone. We just fished and laid in the sun and drank beer like everybody else does in those cottages. So I was used to being outdoors. But I actually, but I mean, the crazy part is I started out in fashion design because I also love ball gowns. Then that, I realized that that wasn't going to get me the living. Wound up, you know, I looked at IT, but this was back in the day when we used cards and, and it was when we first started converting the libraries, the cards in the libraries. Yes. That was the only, that, there were no personal computers, nothing. Um, but my dad was always... He, he bought the first, we call it the H, it was an HP, it was like a reverse calculator. And at, at that time, those were like $450, right? That's a lot Nobody of money. had those. It was a lot of money, of money back yeah. in those days. We had the first microwaves. 
at our house. My dad had a bag phone before everybody else had bag phones. So I was always seeing these different kinds of technologies, but I, for some reason, wound up in retail for like 10 years. And then I thought, ah, oh, I'm in my thirties. I'm single. Do I want to fold jeans and work with, you know, I have a staff that just wants to, we're working on clothing all the time. Not that retail is a bad thing and we need those people doing that job, but I didn't want to do it anymore. So I got into forestry. I was like, I'm outside all the time. What do I do? So I talked to a lot of people. I was lucky to live in a world where mead, paper, mead products, you know, all your all your school supply stuff, mm-hmm. they were in they were in my town. So they they it was right during the time of when Brazil was going through a lot of stuff, and we had the the first Earth conferences that were going on down in Rio. And I thought, how can I make a difference? And it was also here in the United States when the spotted owl was a problem because. It was closing down the forests. So the businesswoman and me wanted to keep the forests open, but the person who lived to be outside was like, how do we save this silly owl? And Purdue took a chance on me and said, let's, you can come to school here, even though you don't know anything about forests, we'll figure something out. And um, so I started working on something called green certification. And um, I think I have a, I thought I had it here. So anyway, started looking at how do we label products that come from well-managed forests. And that was when I realized I loved working on big products, big projects, life-changing, world-changing projects. So that was, I started working on that, wound up having a chance to work on biotechnology in trees. Like how do we grow more trees on less land so people can have the forests that they love for everything else. Had a chance then to move into oil and gas for a while because that's another natural, sustainable conversation. And then had a chance to go back to Purdue many, many, many years later and help build teams to go after these big, crazy agricultural issues and to get them the funding they needed. And then I went out on my own. So that's the that's the long and the short of it. Hallelujah. But, that's so actually I, a great so story. Got, yeah. Thank I'm you. I'm sure your retail experience has really helped you in this. Oh my gosh, yeah. It yeah. really it, it you've got to have a customer. You gotta have, have, to have, have a customer. Gotta know what they want. Gotta know how to sell to them. Gotta know how to market to them. Right. Absolutely. You're all you're talking about these cultural issues. Well, that's sort of like a retail conundrum, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's super I remember, cool. I remember when I was a buyer, I'm looking at all these fabrics. I was in the furniture area. I was looking at all these fabrics and I said, I really like that one. And my boss said, you can't have that one. I said, but it's in the list of swatches. And it's like, yeah, but nobody buys that. People, our bread and butter is the, this, these couches with wooden arms and Herculon covers that can handle the spills and the dog and the kids. And that thing that you're looking at, belongs in somebody's house that's got an exquisite mansion and nobody sits on that furniture. And it was like a really eye-opening thing to know my store served the people who were more, it's got to be rough and tumble furniture, not the high end. You see, you really have to know your customer. Yeah, you really do. That reminds me of, um, had a marketing person in my agency that had, uh, you know, come in from an internship and then worked with us. And at his university, he developed, his team developed a campaign for, I can't remember who it was for, Coca-Cola or some big company like that. And they were competing against other marketing teams. And they came back to him and said, well, yours was very innovative, but it didn't win because it was way outside of like, what even the market would bear as far as costs, right? Right. There's a life lesson for you. Well, no, and that's so true. I mean, we think about what they're doing at Tesla. So when we think first about people wanted to, you know, people said driverless cars. 
And people like panicked, a car without a driver? What do we do? A car without a driver? How do we do it? All these people are going to die. There's going to be accidents. There's going to be all these problems. But what Tesla really helped do and GM has really helped do is now if you get in your car, you can see out the back through your little camera, right? You've got now, if you go a little bit outside of the lane, the car goes easy, 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 right? You have now the cruise control that if you have cruise control and you're approaching a car, your car will slow down automatically, right? Before you crash into it. You have now, I saw a Buick Envision, they were doing a commercial where it backs into the parking lot, your hands free. So we're now, it's little bits and pieces of the driverless car coming together, but we couldn't do it all at once. That's exactly right. And People don't realize the gradient approach to things right? that, ha that has to take place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we can't just introduce orange corn and say there's no more yellow corn. <laughs> no, we, have we have to, to find a way it. to introduce it in different ways. You have to, that's why it's so important to understand the customer. Right. Right. And start with the customer that wants your product. Don't try to convert the people that don't want it. You know, if you don't go into a big city where they have no interest in environmental sustainability or eliminating food deserts, go to a town that cares about that. Yes. It's so yeah. much easier. I know. It is so much easier. <laughs> it's business 101. Right. Well, what do you, do you have any crazy passions outside of work? Are you a big gardener? Actually, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably so sick of it, right? Oh, well, it's, it, you know, it, it's literally, you know, to do it in your backyard can be backbreaking work. So I am not interested in backbreaking work anymore. I'm a swimmer, so that there's no backbreaking. That's hard in, work, though. In, no, well, it depends. I mean, I've been doing it forever. So that is, that's, <laughs> okay, that's really, that's. That's really one of my big crazy passions, but don't ask me to run. If you're a runner, no, we will never get on Forget that. Forget about it. I'll run, thing. you swim. That's right. Yeah, I think that's, that's my biggest one. And then, you know, like a lot of us, our kids, my daughter is, I, I sometimes think I'm more passionate about her music career than she is, but I've learned so much over the years about music, which I didn't know. And that's really where I got the conductor analogies. It I was really going to ask you. It helped me understand there's a first, second, third, and fourth trumpet, and they're not all playing at the same time, and they're all playing different notes, but they all have to play their note at the right time to have it make a difference. You know, the other thing that I love, I love LinkedIn. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Yes, of course you can. There is, there is so, I love this new form of social media for business, if we can keep it to business. But I think it's a remarkable way, given that we have to find new ways to market. Nobody goes into the stores the way they used to. And how do we talk to people about the stuff that's happening out there and have it be in a way that makes, you know, it isn't something that people buzz through like a commercial because somehow we have to find ways to get to our people. And yeah. I love, I love that we're trying to figure out LinkedIn's a really great way to start working through the social media piece for businesses. And so I'm very, I'm always curious about technologies that can help us get our work done differently from a marketing perspective because you don't want your stuff sitting on the shelf. Yes, that's so true. Well, look at your daughter already contributing to <laughs> all the love you're putting in her music career. <laughs> Speaking of LinkedIn, how do people get a hold of you? Yeah, it's um, Dawn W. Parks on LinkedIn. And I've got an email. It's right now it's DawnParks2027 at Gmail. And I'm happy to send all that information over to you, but mostly through telephone and email is the best way to get me. So. Okay, fantastic. So it's Dawn W. Parks on LinkedIn. Correct. Okay, great. Don, yeah, thank direct. you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank this you. It's been KJ. great. Very eye opening for me. I want to know more. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today, go tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with a little tidbit from this show. 
Thank you for listening to the Disruption Interruption podcast, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, and alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.